and welcome to Film Walk. This is Glenn. I'm here with Daniel. Hello. And tonight we're going to be reviewing the new film from writer-director M. Night Shyamalan based on a graphic novel, and that film is old. But first, we will be checking out a 2012 film from writer-director Aurora Guerrero, and that film is Mosquita y Mari. Tell me something. Something you never told anyone. Mosquita y Mari. Fuck the rest. Whenever anybody gets on their nerves, this will be our kicking spot. ¿Cómo fue cuando conociste a mi papá? ¿De qué hablas? Eh, usted sabe cosas de la vida. Te hemos dicho perfectamente que lo único que te tiene que preocupar es la escuela. No ando en chinga todo el día para que tú lo eches todo a perder. See, that's what I'm talking about. That says I'm here. No, we're here. It's me and you for life. That was from the trailer of Mosquita y Mari, a 2012 film from writer-director Aurora Guerrero starring Vanessa Pineda and Venicia Troncoso as a pair of teenage girls who uh, come from similar worlds insofar as they both live in the neighborhood of Huntington Park uh, in Los Angeles County. It is a solidly working class uh, and about 97% Hispanic or Latino neighborhood. It is adjacent to a... Uh, a boulevard called Pacific Boulevard, which is featured prominently in the film as well, which is uh, both a, a place for little storefronts and bodegas and little groceries and butchers and things like that. Um, it's also the place for a lot of uh, renowned cultural institutions in, uh, in Los Angeles County. Um, it's changed significantly over the last half century. Um, you can guess I consulted Wikipedia after watching this film because it was not a neighborhood that I was all that familiar with. This is one thing that I enjoy about very personal independent films like this is they are often an avenue to introduce me to a neighborhood and community and cohort of people that I might not otherwise get to know in much the same way as that film uh, Lingua Franca introduced us to that neighborhood in New York City with uh, um, a large population of Russian immigrants. This film um, introduced us to this neighborhood of Huntington Park and what the concerns, what the daily lives are like for people living in this uh, in this place at this time. And this film uh, features these two teenage girls who become unlikely friends. One of them is, I guess I would say, what passes for middle class um, among the among the working class cohort of this neighborhood, insofar as her parents are not looking for their next uh, their next meal. You know, they're not looking for their next paycheck. They are able to keep the lights on. They're able to keep a roof over their head. And that is what the Overos, uh, that's, that's Yolanda's family, have to experience. Her neighbor, Mari, across the street, uh, is the child of a single mom. She has a sister, uh, and they can barely make rent. They've got an empty fridge. They're struggling in, in many significant ways. And also, Mari herself is both kind of a cool kid, but also a little dangerous. You know, she's she's always looking for her next hustle, her next job. But she's also not afraid to shoplift and not afraid to run scams or prowl cars. And this film ends up being a sort of a coming-of-age tale as these two strike up initially a friendship and then what is clearly a romance, but I think the two characters themselves have a hard time understanding quite what it is because this is maybe the first experience they have had with romance in general as well as, uh, as, well as knowing that they are attracted to girls themselves. So 
I found this film uh, fairly engrossing um, in large part because of these two core performances, um, as well as just how thoroughly realized this world is. Uh, you know, the high school, the cohort of friends, uh, which is uh, Yoli and Mari, and uh, this, these these two uh, friends played by two real life sisters um, known as Las Cuatas, uh, Vicky and Vega, and just the ways in which they interact with each other, the ways in which they flit seamlessly back and forth between English and Spanish as they're talking, um, the uh, what their academic concerns are, what their practical concerns are all of these things get introduced in a very naturalistic way and i found this film fairly riveting early on what did you think of it daniel and also for that matter you picked this film why did you pick this film i did you know we were looking for a second film and i saw a tweet by uh, talia lavin uh, who is someone i believe you read her book I did. Her book is Culture Warlords. It was through film Twitter that I first became acquainted with her work. She's written for a number of national publications, written political articles, and subsequently become quite a scholar of uh, of online white supremacy and right-wing radicalized communities online. And as of last year, literally wrote the book on the subject. She infiltrated a number of these uh, these communities on, on the, the far right online and wrote an expose book called Culture Warlords, which is a fantastic book. Definitely recommend it. So she plugged this movie on, uh, on Twitter then. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she uh, she said that the movie was quite beautiful and that every scene was beautiful and, and beautifully framed. And I was like, well, that's quite high praise. I've never heard of this film. And we were looking for a second you know, film to review. So I said, sure, it's on Netflix. Why not? That was all I knew about it going into it. Didn't read anything more than her tweet. Yeah, this film had played at the uh, Sundance Film Festival, but I don't believe it got much of a release after that. It's now available on streaming services. It's on Netflix. That was how we watched it. So yeah, definitely uh, one that's worth checking out. But Daniel, what did you think of the film? I thought it was rather endearing. I kind of contrasted a little bit to Moonlight, which just felt like a depressing slog, where this felt lively, upbeat. They're working through their feelings towards each other, towards their family, towards the future. It's coming of age. It's, you know, they're attracted to each other, but they're not sure how, you know, how that works, really. Like, they're not sure how far they want to take that attraction. They're not even really sure why they're attracted to each other. But they are, and they care about each other, and they're trying to help each other. And they bond over math. And who doesn't think math is, isn't romantic? Uh, Certainly. Yeah, I, I guess I really liked. I, I thought it was a, a breezy watch, and that it wasn't it wasn't too depressing. The characters make sense. They had a they had a, a shopkeep that was very interested in all the children's lives. That was Don Pedro. Don Pedro, yes, Don Pedro was was very keen to let the parents know what he thought their kids were up to. The town gossip and crier, most definitely. <laughs> I like learning about the community. I, li- I like how they, you know, interwove Spanish and English together. I think that's something that is quite common in those communities, but it was also just kind of cool to listen to. I was Googling some of the words as they were saying it to, like, get context, right, to understand exactly what they meant. Like, yeah. homegirl. Homegirl was the one that came up a lot. I was like, what exactly is the context of that word? If they're saying, oh, it's homegirl. Okay. So... The title of the film comes from a what's initially an insult that Mari makes toward Yoli when she's assigned to her to share her math book in class because she's a new a new student and they don't have a math book for her. So but she says, you look like a pinche mosquita. You look like a fucking little fly. That was what she was saying. (laughs) And that was they end up warming to each other shortly after that, kind of for no reason at all. Like Mari ends up almost getting them busted for weed, which she was smoking. And, uh, and Yoli is, uh, Grateful to her for shoving her out of the bathroom door before the uh, before the school employee holds her back and is like demanding to take her to the principal's office, which is ridiculous. I mean, Mari was the one smoking weed. Yoli had not done a goddamn thing. Yeah, but when you're telling the line between college and failure, you can't you can't afford a slip up. 
That is true. And, uh, and, you know, somebody pushing you out of troubles. Well, like regard, like whether, whether it was appropriate for her to feel grateful for that or not, she did. Mari, in spite of herself, found this girl endearing to her as well, even though she thought and initially kind of felt like she was just this little puppy trailing around behind her. They very quickly start bonding. And it's very interesting to watch that process develop. Yeah, and I think the actresses uh, who, who play, uh, you know, Mari and, and Yoli, I think they really like nailed like the little looks and the like the little emotional ticks. I really bought that they were discovering who they were and discovering what this relationship was. Uh, and, and I think the actress who played Mari is, doesn't have a whole lot of film credits. This is Venezia Troncoso. Yeah, so good honor for acting in this film because uh, I think she did a great job. I was reminded of a quote from a film that I saw, I think two years ago now, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, um, which is uh, a period piece romance between two women on a on an island off the coast of France. Absolutely gorgeous film, if, uh, if you get a chance to check it out. But these are adult women, and they may be figuring out that they are attracted to women for the first time, but they're not new to human sexuality, and they are not new to knowing and understanding themselves. So when they're dropping quotes like, do all lovers feel as if they're inventing something as they are, you know, about to make love for the first time. It reminds me watching a film like this, that these are actual teenagers. They are not articulate about their feelings. They don't really understand their feelings themselves. They don't understand what they're, what they want to do with their bodies. They don't understand, you know, what urges they feel inside themselves. And that's going to become relevant in our review of old as well. I should mention, (laughs) but this film really felt authentic in that way that when I compare it to a film like Booksmart or a film like Superbad, where we're clearly looking at a pair of teenagers that are being played by 19 to 22 year olds at the minimum, who've kind of got their shit together and dialogue being written by people who are 10 to 15 years older. There's just a sense of authenticity that is there in this film that is absent from those films. And those are films that I enjoyed very much, but they are heightened comedies. They are not aiming for authenticity. And this film, from for every frame of its runtime, felt as if it was aiming for authenticity. And it came through in their performances, and it came through in the script as well. So I, I have to applaud the movie for that. Yeah, and I, you know, I don't know about you, but I hadn't heard of this film uh, going into it. And it came out in 2012, uh, so quite quite a few years ago. And I'm surprised that there wasn't any more buzz. This was a very sweet film. Yeah, I mean, movies come and go even faster now than they did in 2012. So it doesn't surprise me that this film, you know, kind of fell under the radar. It's, it, you know, it's it's not arbitrary which films people decide to promote. You know, the film press in those days was overwhelmingly white male. Uh, and I, I think the, uh, the drive toward promoting films that are from less commonly amplified voices is not only a much more recent phenomenon, but it's a phenomenon that is still constantly fighting against uh, the desire to promote the next big studio thing. So... I, I don't want to pat ourselves on the back too much here because when I look at a film, definitely do that. When I when I look at a film like this as a straight white dude, I think okay, my tendency is to attempt to universalize this, to attempt to describe the ways in which I relate to these characters' struggles. And those ways do exist. And in those ways, it feels like I'm watching an authentic teenage love story here, between two people who barely know that they're in a love story. And there's so much of that that I that I think is relatable to people who are not uh, people who are not in a in a situation where they are struggling with poverty, to people who are not in a situation where they are struggling with you know finding their you know with with food insecurity, where they are struggling with the potential that they might be deported because they don't have legal status here. 
I think that those aspects of it exist, but I think that uh, it it would be arrogant for us to presume we understand them fully. And this film feels like a lens into that community and those perspectives in a way that does not feel like it's beating you over the head with any of it. It's just telling an authentic story. Well, it shows and doesn't tell, right? That's what I appreciate. I, I like I like looking into the window. I don't necessarily need to be beaten over the head with what what I should be seeing. Yeah, the way everybody was reacting about the notion of flyering and whether Mari was on was on Pacific flyering, whether she was handing out flyers for the shops, it was clear to me, even knowing nothing about this, that flyering was regarded as in some way a scandalous activity. I didn't know why, but the movie made that very clear. I was assuming fly, she was flyering for a strip club, maybe? Yeah, that's what I thought too. But then it turns out to just be a passport Photoshop, so I didn't really, or, or just a Photoshop in general. So... And then we sort of learn over the course of this kind of, oh, what sorts of people do you end up hanging out with if you're flyering? What other sorts of activities do those people engage in? So the movie kind of ropes you in and it doesn't give everything to you right away, but it, it gives you just enough that you want to that you want to stay tuned and find out more. Right. And there's more going on than just, as Mari puts it at one point, this fucking little kid stuff of this teenage love story. She is a kid experiencing love for the first time, but she's also a kid who's dealing with some very grown up stuff. Yeah, she's got to put food on the table. She has a younger sister. She has a mother who's working on her hardest but can't make ends meet very well. They're in a tight spot. Yeah. That's about all I've got, uh, Daniel. I don't know that I want to do a spoiler section for this. I think this is a movie people should absolutely check out for themselves. Um, I, th- I think that this movie hits like a ton of bricks in its third act. And it's. Uh... Do we want to talk about the finale of the film at all? I don't know if we need to do like a spoiler section. I, I think in the recommendation of that you just watch it and, and let, like kind of just soak it in is a good recommendation enough. I don't necessarily think we need to. Uh, We'll have enough spoilers for old. Indeed. This is also not a long film at all. It's about an hour and 26 minutes or thereabouts. So yeah, definitely strong recommendation. Go go on to Netflix and check this film out. It does not feel like homework. About half of the film is in English and the other half is in subtitled Spanish. It was very easy to follow, even as somebody who does not speak Spanish. Yeah, definitely worth checking out. That film is Mosquita y Mari. It is from 2012 and it is from writer-director Aurora Guerrero. Daniel, any final thoughts about the film? Uh, it was kind of a hidden gem. Like, yeah, I had actually like searched for it in Netflix. It wasn't on like a main page or even like the next couple of pages. So it's there. You just have to type it in. I think it was very authentic. I thought it was very sweet. And I enjoyed the story they told. And I really appreciated that they introduced things and didn't necessarily harp on them. And like you got to derive your own um, interpretation if you weren't familiar with what it was. Like a flyering. Flyering was scandalous, but I don't know exactly why, except maybe it was yeah. low class, because it sounded like she was flyering for a shop. Not sure, but good on Mari for the hustle, just going to store after store and saying, hey, you need help? Well, the sense that I got overwhelming throughout the film, we do learn the various dimensions of how flyering is regarded over the course of the film, but the one consistent through line was that it was regarded as a distraction from your education. Yeah. Anything that stops you from doing well in school and going to college and doing better than your parents did, uh, you know, with the, with the marvelous opportunities that you have here that your parents didn't have, is a distraction and should be avoided. That is the pressure that is on them 100% of the time, as they are just figuring out who they are and who they're going to be, and at the same time trying to figure out how to love somebody in the world as a new experience for themselves. So yeah, definitely uh, worth checking out. It is a film that I think tells a human story first and foremost, but also I, you know, it it is very much telling the story of the lesbian community of the Chicana community of the undocumented community of the working class Latino community in Los Angeles. All of these things are there as well. So definitely worth checking out. Well, that brings us to the end of our discussion of Mosquita Imari. If you have any feedback, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. And now on to our review of Old. No kids 
Allowed on the beach? What? No. I'm not sure. Oh, no. Oh, no. We never leave each other. Nothing separates us. Are we there yet? You said five minutes. Technically, it's been more than five minutes. Let's just all start slowing down. Wow. Do you believe I found this online? Well, I guess it's not that secret a beast. Whoa. Who would leave this? From the hotel! They're so rusted! What's happening? Found stuff from the hotel in the sand. I don't know. What happened to her? The body has decomposed. How quickly can that happen? Seven years. But she just died. Wait, where are the kids? Trent! Kara! Come here! Hey, have you seen my children? Mom? I'm, I'm right here. That was from the trailer of Old, the new film written and directed by M. Night Shyamalan, based on the graphic novel Sandcastle by Pierre-Oscar Levy and Frederick Peters. This film features Gael Garcia Bernal, Vicky Creeps, Rufus Sewell, Thomas and McKenzie, Nikki Amuka Bird, Ken Leung, Eliza Scanlon, and a host of other uh, folks in this ensemble, because it is about a whole group of people that find themselves on a mysterious beach surrounded by cliffs that cause them to begin aging rapidly. They have fallen into a paranormal trap, and they will remain there until the day they die, which is today, at least as far as they know. That is the peril that is at work in this film. Uh, it features uh, the work of cinematographer Mike Gulakis, who has uh, been a Shyamalan collaborator for his last uh, several films. He worked with him on Split and Glass as well. Uh, he also shot John Dies at the end, and It Follows, two films with very interesting cinematography, and he shot Jordan Peele's Us. Uh, so this is a guy who is uh, developing quite the body of work around the horror genre, and uh, it definitely the the ways in which this film is uh, is shot work very much in its favor, but also uh, the ways in which it toys with its premise and uh, elaborates on all the different ways in which its premise can cause these people's lives to go wrong over the course of the remaining hours they have on this earth is really quite something. So, Daniel, I'll put it to you. This film it really puts its characters through a ringer. Did it put you through a ringer as well? It put me through something. Uh, I have to say, I had zero expectations going into this. And I'm not a big Shyamalan fan, but it kind of works. <laughs> I kind of had a really good time with this. And it shouldn't work. It should be really hokey and silly. And it is, but it also is very character-driven and poignant. But it's also incredibly silly. So it's, it's a really nice balance. And... Boy, that is a. There's some horrifying things that take place on this beach. And what I appreciate as somebody who hates horror films as a genre, they're just not my bag. What I appreciated was horrible things happen. You kind of see the results of it, but you don't dwell on it. It's not meant to be grisly and gory. You just. It's more like existential horror of like. Facts of life. This is what awaits us all. The only reason why this is horrifying is because it's all happening so fast. Right, right. I guess it's just uh, the fast-forward button being hit on our lives. Yeah, and we're just on this beach. Yeah, and in that way, this film reminded me a little bit of David Lowry's A Ghost Story, a film that ended up being my number one of the Ooh. year. Spoiler alert, this will not be my number one of the year or anywhere close to it, but it is a film that 
not only dabbles in body horror and uh, as, as well as just kind of conventional violence of the genre, but it also, at a certain point, that seems like it becomes beside the point. It seems like the characters are just committed to the reality of themselves being just mayflies in geologic time and really not much worse off than the rest of us out here in the real world. You know, what difference does it make between one day and a hundred years, if we're lucky? It's still just a blip. We're here and we're gone and the rocks will remain. You know, that is what this film, I think, tapped into. And I was very, I would say, surprised and impressed that it managed to do that. Yeah, I have to say, like, it, it, a premise shouldn't work. But I think, like uh, Ghost Story, which is very divisive. We have friends that hate that film. But, like, you and I both loved it. I don't know. Existential horror, I think, works for us. <laughs> I think, like, it, gets, it, it taps into that uh, part of our brain that it gets a uh, high anxiety over knowing what lies in the future. Yeah, you know, the characters that we meet, it's kind of like a, a, a Motley crew you know, type situation, you know, just a bunch of randos on this beach and how they have to come together and deal with each other is, is interesting. And they're relatively one-note characters, but just seeing how they all react to this existential horror that's happening upon them is interesting, right? Because we all approach death differently and aging differently. And some people don't age well. And yeah. some people have underlying health conditions that cut their lives short. And some people bring a beautiful dog to the beach and the dog dies. So <laughs> Indeed. Spoilers, the dog dies, and I was sad because I liked the dog. We didn't know for sure whether the effect of this speech would affect the dog, but I was not I was not expecting the dog to survive as soon as we saw there was a dog in the film going to the mystery beach where time Correct. speeds up. Yeah, I guess it does not bode well for the dog. But I think Jamalong is able to play with the premise in a way that is both kind of horrifying and also like it kept it interesting. Like it, I guess if it was one note that just people get starting to wither and gray, that would have been kind of boring. But just some of the ways that he played with that concept, I thought worked really well. And at least like it kept things moving and kept it fresh. Yeah, we, we say he, but obviously we don't know what came from the graphic novel and what oh, came sure. from the, the twisted mind of M. Night Shyamalan. But, but at the same time, I think that what we can definitively credit Shyamalan for is a sense of pacing here. I was almost tempted to say this would have worked better as a miniseries, but I found myself second-guessing that because you almost need to have this take place over a movie's timescale because this premise only works if you are feeling this with the same urgency that the characters are. Yeah. And... Even though this film felt, I guess I would say, a bit campy in the opening act, M. Night Shyamalan literally plays the guy who leads them to their doom. <laughs> the, the resort driver brings them out there. And, you know, in the same way that M. Night Shyamalan, who, who by the way, looks lovely for his age. You know, he, he does. I, I, don't, I know this because he's been in every one of his fucking films. You know, he keeps showing up as the guy to drop a key bit of exposition or, or, or advance the plot in some way. And... Here he's just kind of the he's just kind of the mad ringmaster who's there to bring them all out there to their doom and then watch it all happen. So it's uh it's really the movie's attitude about what is going on here feels a little bit sadistic at the beginning. It does. But then at a, at a certain point it seems like the characters themselves have so thoroughly accepted their situation that it doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter that there are people out there watching them. It doesn't matter that there of course we don't know the nature of that until the end of the film, but we do see that there's somebody watching from the hillside. We see somebody walking around we see some camera lenses there's something going on up there it's not an us versus them situation it's an us versus time 
It's us versus our oldest enemy time. Exactly right. And that and I think this film I think this film succeeded with what it was setting out to do, which was make time into the nemesis of us all and remind us that it is the nemesis that has stalked us since the day we were born. It is it was seeking that existential horror, but it wasn't afraid to go for that that campy body horror as well. And I am genuinely impressed that this film managed to juggle those tones so well. But I have a lot more tolerance for uneven tones than I think a lot of people do. So I think I don't know, I'm kind of of two minds about it, because I think M. Night Shyamalan has a hokey reputation, deservedly. You know, he has a reputation of a guy who doesn't really take portrayals of mental illness all that seriously, or or all that uh, all that thoughtfully, for instance, and there's an example of that in this film as well. I also think that if this exact same film were made by Yorgos Lanthimos or Lars von Trier, or somebody who has a reputation for delivering fucked up films in a way that is more of a critical darling... I think those same critics would probably be enjoying this film a lot more. They would not be looking for reasons not to uh, not to like it. Yeah, it's because Shyamalan has a stamp on it that you know people already dismiss it. I, I don't want to impugn other critics' objectivity here, but I do think that M Night Shyamalan has a certain amount of built-in disdain that is is hard to avoid discussing at this point. Well, no, I haven't read any. Uh, I didn't read the critics' reviews. I read some audience reviews, and they were. It's very divisive, right? There oh, I, I think who, that it's not just film Twitter that I'm talking about here. I'm talking about the audience as well. I think Shyamalan has a reputation among regular people, too. Yeah, that's true. Well, when I think of Shyamalan, I think of, oh, no, the plants are killing people. And that's not really fair, but that's the first thing that pops in my mind. Dude, I, I'm going to admit something here. I actually really liked The Happening when I saw it. It was in my <laughs> early 20s. But in the same way as this film juggles kind of campy body horror and over-the-top violence with, you know, kind of a tone of existential horror, with also just a bit of that campy Shyamalan weirdness of, like, random weird old people showing up and being being paranoid about their, their weird house in the woods. Like, this film has all of that as well. And, and in those ways, Shyamalan has a signature that is always there in his films. But I don't know. I, I think at this point, I'm kind of used to the, the jarring shifts in tone and I'm kind of just ready to strap in for it. So what about you? Did the tone shifts work for you? They were a little bit jarring at times, but I was also, I liked the premise enough that I was willing to roll with it. And I, I think he balances it pretty well. And I guess if, because it's not gory, that tonal shift kind of works because you never really see grotesque. Like you, I guess there's one moment of grotesqueness uh, that takes place in, in the last third, but it's mostly just like existential horror and a little bit of campiness. So it works because yeah. it's not like here's a decapitated skull and blood spewing out and also like jokes. Those moments where fucked up things were happening and oh, they do happen. Yeah. Oh, yeah. In this film, there's one extended shot where there's not a cut for like two or three solid minutes and the camera's panning around in circles. The waves are crashing in on the beach and there are multiple things happening with multiple groups at the same time. And multiple things that on their own would be the most fucked up thing in this film and they are happening simultaneously but my reaction to each of those things individually and as a whole was one that felt like a brave choice on the movie's part like it felt like a brave choice to go there it felt like a brave choice to commit to the reality of the horror of the of this premise and two it really created a sense of urgency that all these things were happening at the same time and that that is part of the way in which this film committed to and ultimately succeeded with its premise I think we need to explain the premise. The magical beach ages you one year for every 30 minutes. 
Yeah, so you will die on this beach. If you're a grown-up right now, you'll age 50 years in a day. You're you're done. If you're a kid, you might last two days. That's what you got to look forward to. And there are kids on this beach, and there are adults on this beach. It's not much of a spoiler to say that people die of old age in this movie. <laughs> uh, but the uh, the ways in which they die, and the ways, uh, the ways in which the premise has expanded over the course of the film, I think we need to get into spoilers to discuss further. Yeah, I think so. I think uh, it's, it's time to uh, age, Glenn. It's time to grow old together. Awful, Daniel. I'm going to speed up your your recitation of that line, just that it takes place faster in geologic time. Oh no, it's been a year. All right, well from here on out, spoilers for old. Yeah, Daniel, I saw on film Twitter there was a running joke going around where you've seen this on film Twitter where people will will show a uh, they'll put in a still frame from a movie that they like and then they'll put uh, the title of the film and then in parentheses director so and so and maybe a year. You've, you've seen this this genre of tweet where it's just yes. here's a still from a movie that I like. Well, uh, there were people putting stills from old director I'm not sure I'm on 2021, but they were not actually from this movie. My favorite one was a picture of Ben Platt from Dear Evan Hansen as the 28 year old teenager. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I uh, had to appreciate that. But that is ultimately what we see in this film. We see a bunch of grown up children. And boy, the ways in which the grown up children act were among the most fascinating things in this film. Far more fascinating than what the actual grown ups did. Because, you know, the grown ups were just kind of learning how to be old people and how to let their old grievances go and also how to deal with their bodies breaking down in, in unexpected and horrifying ways. Those that lasted that long. The two standout performances that we have here are Alex Wolf and Thomas and McKenzie as Trent and as Maddox, who started off this film as like six and eight years old respectively and then and this reveal is handled beautifully like we know it's coming and there is an absolute sense of dread as we hear their voices changing but we hear their mannerisms not changing they're going around and quizzing everybody on what their what their occupations are name an occupation Um, please yeah, but we see that they have gotten taller. We see that they have that they're starting to develop adult bodies. These are, you know, they, they play them basically for the ages of like thirteen through twenty. Basically, these two actors do. And I think Tom, uh, Thomas and McKenzie is the one that I was familiar with prior to this. I believe she's in her early twenties in real life, but. Um, and she is she is fantastic and does not have a ton to do here because it's an ensemble film. But uh, if you want to see a film that is an absolute showcase for her, check out Deborah Granick's uh, film Leave No Trace, uh, which is kind of just a two shot with her. And uh, I believe it's Ben Foster playing her father in that film. Fantastic film. Fantastic set of performances. Um, but uh, Thomasin McKenzie is in particular is playing, you know, she's used to being the older child. And all of a sudden she realizes that she's got an adult body. And that is something that is very distressing to commit to the reality of in a film. And this movie fucking commits to that reality because it has her six-year-old younger brother in the body of a teenager getting with another six-year-old girl. And they disappear off screen and they're hanging out in a tent together and they're talking to each other and they're talking about how their minds are changing. They're talking about how they're feeling more thoughts than they ever thought before. And what a fucking fascinating idea. This is what I wanted out of the movie Voyagers, mm-hmm. where you've got these people that were essentially raised as children who are confronting their sexuality for the first time and they don't have the tools, either community or intellectually, to deal with their with their burgeoning sexuality. Oh, they figure it out at record speed. Well, they do. And for the movie to acknowledge that, yes, if you took a couple of just basically normal kids 
but then basically, t- uh, you know, snapped your finger and made them big like Tom Hanks, would they suddenly feel? <laughs> would they suddenly have adult libidos? Would they suddenly have hormones flowing through their bodies? Would they figure out sex? So that's the biggest dis- uh, departure between people who like this film and people who didn't is accepting. Uh, so for for what I read, and I didn't read critic reviews, I just read uh, audience reviews. The idea that a six-year-old, their mind would evolve. And they say, like, yeah, we get the magic of the body ages, but what is what is the like what is causing their mind and intellect to grow? Well, what they're what they're saying is, but in large part, we know a lot about neurodevelopment during those ages, but we don't really understand what causes it and what is ne- what is a necessary component for it. That is where I think the film is engaging in complete fantasy here. Uh, it is an existential fantasy. What it's they were saying children- was, well, they're still six year olds, just the bodies of of adults, like in big. So it's gross. So what what's taking place? Like that, that. I I don't agree. I I, I think that uh, I think that it was a tasteful choice not to show them engaging yes, in these actions. That's not something anybody wanted to see because the idea of the next generation's sexuality is something that the current generation should not have any interest in because it's going to be awkward and messy and ugly and and hopefully Speaking it's from the your sort of thing experience. That, Speaking from anyone's experience, man, like what was teenage sexuality about if not if not figuring things out for yourself? And of course, we had the time to mature. We had the sex education that occurred in the, uh, in the in the interim. We at least knew what we were doing going into this. So the idea that this movie makes me think about what the mind of a six year old with suddenly the the mental faculties of a sixteen year old and the hormones of a sixteen year old would do in that situation. It was a very fascinating idea, and it was a movie that the movie, frankly, had balls for broaching and for making the audience think about. If people are not willing to consider that idea, to consider that concept as a part of the existential horror of this film, I would say that you are a cowardly viewer. Honestly, <laughs> it's it is no more or less horrifying than a stomach tumor growing in size. You are taking a both a biological and a mental process, and you are speeding it up. If we're meant to be experiencing that aspect of this story in real time and dealing with these people who who didn't have time to adjust to these things, dealing with them in real time, we have to confront the full reality of that. So my mouth was open when this was happening. I was horrified by it. Yeah, like, this, well, this is really fucked up. I, I think what what worked better was not showing it, right? Just uh, exactly. having having them have that conversation of I'm experiencing new ideas and new feelings. I don't really know how to write the story. And then all of a sudden we see cars pregnant. <laughs> they don't even know what they've done afterward. They don't even know. They don't even understand what they did. They talked about, they said they were playing. That's all they said. Yeah. And we get a sense in some of the shouted dialogue in that scene that Trent had at least experienced some basic sex education. He knew about the mechanics of sexuality because he says at one point to his mother, I thought you couldn't do that. For, I thought you had to do it like 10 times or whatever. So he at least understood that he had had sex, but he didn't understand really what that meant. He well, didn't keep understand in mind, the significance Trent, of Trent and Tara are, are sexual rock stars because they had sex for days, if not months, of their lives. <laughs> so good on in, them. Indeed. I, and this is part of why I think this is such a such a triumph for the film, because as I was experiencing just shock and horror at what was happening here, that these children had, had done this thing and had had this horrific consequence as a result— my reaction was not to be disgusted or grossed out by. It. My reaction was to say, "Oh, those poor kids." Yeah, right. Like how how twisted must their minds be right now? And they are the ones who I latched onto. They were the emotional center of this film because they are having their lives snatched away from them. Obviously, the adults are having that too, but they at least had a chance to grow up. And these kids are not getting that chance. And that and that is the horror of this film. Well, I think the worst part is that baby who had zero chance. 
I mean, that baby barely had a chance to realize what was going on. The idea that it died from a lack of attention with just two minutes on a blanket is feels like hand-waving on the movie's part to me. A little bit, but... We've done this fucked up thing, but we're not. We're just going to shove those consequences away so we don't have to deal with a dead baby anymore. <laughs> and it, de- it deals with a dead baby a little bit after that. I like the idea of that that's just part of the world, right, okay, Bill? And that a baby couldn't survive because you couldn't feed it fast enough because that was one yeah. one element that they added in like you know Shyamalan says oh I pack a lot of food because kids you know need a lot of food to grow uh, because like they had to keep consum- you know consuming and that baby had no shot even that feels hand wavy to me like the people who could accept that they were able to grow into their adult bodies just through eating enough pasta salad over the course of a day it looked like really good pasta salad if, if you can accept that but not accept that their minds are able to expand to, I guess, adult capacity or adult mental faculties in a just as hand wavy a way. I think you're applying an uneven standard here. Children go through puberty over the course of like five to seven years, and they have to consume millions of calories over that time in order to in, in order to, to make those changes to their body. It's a slow process. You so have to buy the that, concept. If you don't buy the yeah. concept, then you're like, if you don't buy the whole concept, you use like. I, I, it's like pasta salad. You can't just say I like one part of pasta salad. You have to say I like the whole. <laughs> I like I like the pasta salad metaphor. It did look tasty. They it looked like good pasta out. salad. They were eating with the, with their hands, which I thought was gross. But you know what? They didn't have a whole lot of time. Trent was like, "Yeah, I'm not hungry right now." But pregnant gal was like shoveling it down a fistful at a time. But you know, she had to grow a baby. Yeah, so. grow a baby. Fair enough. But I think that you know what's ba- the idea that the baby would die from lack of attention feels of a piece with the idea that the kid's minds would expand as a result of becoming adults. You know, the kid is trying to develop its brain, and if you leave a kid alone on the uh, on the you know, on the floor of a room by itself, it will die from a lack of attention. Babies do need to be held and cuddled to survive. Even if you give them enough food and calories and all of that, they will die if they're not cuddled. Basically, (laughs) this is like a known thing. Um, So yeah, it's a dead babies, notwithstanding. Yeah. The the baby who turned to dust, notwithstanding. We had schizophrenia. We had epilepsy. We had a horrible case of osteoporosis. There was a film featuring both Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando. <laughs> what was that film? I, I looked it up. It's a Western from the 70s. We'll put it in the show notes. Okay. That, that is what Rufus Sewell, who apparently is battling schizophrenia while also being a, uh, a chief of cardiothoracic surgery uh, at a hospital, is uh, is dealing with. I, I honestly think that Charles's main uh, beef is that he's a racist and that his uh, schizophrenia allows that racism to come out because we first meet Midsize Sedan by, by Aaron Pierre. That is his actual uh, rapper name. And there's not much else to him as a character. He spends most of his time sitting on the beach and bleeding out of his nose. But uh, he's there with a with a woman that he met on the uh, on the beach there, who's who's afflicted with some other condition, and she is dead when they arrive. You know, she her body she washes up on the beach. That's right, she had MS, and uh, and they bonded on the basis that he has hemophilia or he has some other kind of blood disorder. Um, and that's what they that's what they come to realize is that all. Every group of people had a sick person in there. Had uh, uh, you know, uh, let's see, uh, Ken Ken Leung as um, as uh, Jaron. His wife uh, Patricia has epilepsy and has a has a grand mal seizure on the island. So um, you know, we know she's got a condition. The uh, the mom, Vicky Creeps, uh, has uh, has stomach cancer. Every group has somebody who is battling some sort of disease and generally hiding it from the rest of their group in some way. And uh, that's what's up. So what do you think of the big reveal? I'm not I'm not going to call this a twist because it's not a twist. Like they were clearly put there on purpose for a specific purpose. We just learn what that purpose is at the end. Yeah, so. it's just a reveal. Uh, I, I think I think the reveal was a little bit too neat and tiny, but I did appreciate that they, just, they didn't leave it vague. 
Like, I, I like the, the reveal makes sense as to why they were being watched, right? Like, okay, so they're running drug trials on this beak. And yeah, it's, it's a big pharma conspiracy where they're disappearing people. They're disappearing people. Apparently, hundreds of people can just disappear because uh, they were on trial 74, if I remember right. Yeah, 73 or 74, thereabouts. Yeah. Okay, fine. If I could buy like a beach that magically ages people, I could buy like a pharma company could get away with this. Like, sure. Well, also, these people apparently have had wildly successful pharmaceuticals as a result of this practice. So they're, you know, they're Mengele. They're doing the Nazi clinical trials that result in the deaths of every subject. But, uh, you know, unlike the Nazis, they're getting useful results. <laughs> you know, they they are. And I assume those results in the real world are wildly profitable. No, no, no hold on, hold on. Did, I thought some of Mengele's uh, uh, test results are still being used. The truthful answer to that is that some of the gross and unethical and inhumane medical experiments done by the Nazis have given us insights into things like uh, the limits of human tolerance of cold and heat and all of that. We have that information. It's part of the store of, of mankind's knowledge, as well as man's inhumanity to man. Yeah, of course. I'm not, I'm not saying all you so did was a good thing by structuring the imagination. Well, I mean, that's, that's what this movie forces you to confront, is the idea that, hey, what could we discover if we didn't care about human lives? <laughs> you know, Well, what- in this case, it was they were able to postpone um, Patricia's epilepsy for 16 years. Yeah, yeah. And they, they discovered a highly successful epileptic seizure controlling drug, which they are about to stick into clinical trials. Clinical trials, which are apparently just going to be a formality at this point, because they know in advance that the drug is going to well, work. Well, they know it worked for Patricia. They don't know if it works on a mass scale. That is true. And the movie definitely hand waves that away. But it, it also explicitly says, we have had results. This has worked. Yes. And that is why we've continued committing to this method, which involves murdering children, which involves <laughs> murdering a bunch of innocent people who are not part of the, of the and trials. And beautiful like, animals. We have to destroy entire families, including their pets. Yes. Thank you. Uh, and we also have to scrub their existence from the world. Obviously, they didn't scrub their existence, but they scrubbed any any evidence that they were traveling. Um, and that, I think, the movie hand waves away pretty effectively. Like, they were tracking their conditions. They were tied into their doctors and their their pharmacies up until that point. They, they obviously had people watching them back in the world right. and arranging their travel. They sent a car for them. They, they basically... So these people would have just disappeared off the face of the earth. They would have been mysteriously missing people. They would have ended up on unsolved mysteries. But by, by the hundreds. Yeah, by the hundreds, but, you know... Uh, hundreds of people in a world of of billions of people it's just not that many missing persons you know and ent- entire families disappearing would be a big deal but it's not the sort of thing people would draw a line between so the idea that this operation could occur in the world without people realizing it i don't know i think it's a little it, it defies credulity a little bit that other random people are coming to this island as well like you've got a bunch of yeah there's a cover right I guess that is the cover. You've got a bunch of people coming there too, but surely this has been a problem before of, of people talking to other people on the Island and other people realizing that they've disappeared. But I guess you've always got the cover of, well, they went home. Yeah. The, 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 their stay has concluded. I guess that's life in the hotel biz. Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Single serving friends as, uh, as fi- as the fight club crew would put it. Yeah. That's very accurate. Well, Daniel, I thought this movie was a was a triumph. I, I will not go so far as to say that we are in a Shyamalanaissance. Uh, I, th- I think that uh, Split was pretty solid. Glass was not so much. I think that it, you know he's been hit or miss over the last yeah, decade. But, you know, uh, I, Devil in twenty ten. I, I love his uh, I love his Seinfeld esque movie joke. Uh, you know, uh, creation, right? Like he just walked outside one day, saw an old person. He's like, "What's the deal with old people?" Well, obviously, that might have been his interest in this in this source material, but the the graphic novel existed prior to. Yeah, his I know, in this I film, know, so. but like you know, Shyamalan and, and the happening, right? What's the deal with plants? Why didn't they let us cut them down? 
I mean, there were so many memorable scenes in that movie. The, the zookeeper feeding himself to the lions. I mean, that was really... There, there were all kinds of fucked up shit in that movie. People lying down in front of lawnmowers. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it was hokey as hell, but he committed to that premise in a big way. That was his first R-rated film, and he earned he earned every drop of blood for it. Well, good for him. You know, honestly, like, I think he's hit or miss, but in this case, I would say it's a hit. I think at this point in his career, I am genuinely surprised to be saying that I was looking forward to an M. Night Shyamalan film. And after seeing this film, I'm looking forward to his next film. Like, his movies are hit or miss for me, but I am never bored while watching them. Yeah. And that really counts for something. Yeah, for sure. Well, Daniel, uh, any final thoughts about old? Boy, I don't want to be on that beach. Not so much, but... uh... At least someone climbed the rocks. I'm glad someone climbed the CGI rocks because I was like, just climb the rocks. Yeah, they dealt with every possible tidy method of escape here. I thought the ultimate way in which two of them end up escaping uh, and and the whole thing gets blown wide open was pretty solid. Um, they introduced, you know, the little kid code uh, early in the film. Yeah. I, I, it had not occurred to me that would ever come back. So good on the movie for that. Um, and callback. we have these two actors, Emma and Elliot and M. Beth Davitz, who are playing Trent and Maddox, who are at this point the only survivors as 50-year-old adults. And Daniel, what did you think of these performances? We don't get a ton of this, of these two, but we do get a sense of how their relationship has evolved over the course of the last day slash half century. I, I, think they did, uh, I think they did a good job uh, for sure. I like the casting in this movie because as people got older and as the kids got older and there was different, you know, iterations of the, of the, of the children through adulthood, I still was like, Oh, I know who that character is. That's Max Maddox. Yeah. Part of that is also just designing your ensemble in such a way where you're not going to mistake one character for another because they are fulfilling a certain role in the story as well. So they've got relationships with specific people. You can very easily keep track of it that way. I thought this movie assembled its ensemble in a very similar way to like lost actually, which Ken Leung was, was uh, also on at one point uh, for a couple seasons. So uh, this film, I think did a good job with its ensemble cast. Vicky creeps who we know and love from phantom thread and Gael Garcia Bernal are both very good here. I think that the relationship struggle in their marriage is kind of shallow in the way that I kind of expect from M. Night Shyamalan at this point. I think that's that's kind of something that he just goes for. It's something that he enjoys including going all the way back to the sixth sense and all the way forward to the happening. <laughs> Everybody in the film has a strained marriage, but I thought Bernal and uh, and Creeps did a, did a good job of basically explaining the ways in which that stuff ceases to matter over the course of the film. They start acting like an old married couple, mm-hmm. but an old married couple has moved beyond the need to fight over petty things. Well, I enjoyed their, I guess their final conversation where he's like that guy that was uh, flirting with you and hitting on you. Like he is goofy. You deserve so much better. <laughs> like, I, I like that. That's a nice coming in terms. Yeah. There's, there's forgiveness for the infidelity, but also he barely remembers it at this point. Yeah. Cause at that point it's been almost uh 40 some years for him. Well, we also get we also start to see their senses fading, their mental faculties fading. That factors into a fight with Rufus Sewell over the, uh, later in the film. I mean, we've not even touched upon the body horror stuff involving them rapidly healing. Oh yeah, that was they had Wolverine powers. The way the surgery to remove the tumor, which is like <laughs> was growing, so to, like it was a fucking, it was three centimeters and it grows to the size of a fucking watermelon by the time they pull it out. That was quite gross. It was and. Then they end up taking out Charles with a rust-covered knife, and he immediately succumbs to septicemia right there in front of them. Woo! That's uh, that's not good. That's a horrible way to die. Yeah, I mean, like I was like, come on, white blood cells, fight it. No, no, he's, he's a goner. At least it's quick. That's the thing. Whatever happens to any of these people, it's going to be quick. Even, you know, osteoporosis. Oh, but that was gross, though. Like, I, I guess, uh, like, her, her body was contorting and breaking all over. I was like, oh, what a horrible way to go. I thought that character was pretty shallow. She was played by Abby Lee, who's an Australian supermodel. And I think 
there just wasn't much to this character in the same way that there wasn't much to her husband, Charles. Like, he's the doc with schizophrenia who is intermittently useful and nasty as it goes. She is the model with hypocalcemia who just gets more and more horrified by the fact that she is looking older. And that's kind of all there is to her. Like, she wants to put on more makeup to cover herself up. And she doesn't want people to look at her face. And she kind of acts like a leper and an outcast. And even after her family is dead, she becomes more and more of a solitary person. And... That, I think, was maybe a missed opportunity. You know, this is a character, like, the family's kind of kept to themselves as this was happening, and she was kind of, you know, left on her own and forced to deal with her grief by herself, and it kind of makes the other characters seem like dicks, but I guess they've kind of got their own stuff to deal with at a certain point, so I don't know. Charles was schizophrenic. He probably forgot he had a wife. Well, no, I mean, the rest of the characters weren't looking after her. She was just kind of off on her own. Yeah, I I, I forgot that she was around until she showed up in the cave. I'm like, oh, yeah, she's still around. Yeah, it's just she's not that interesting of a character. So I thought she was a missed opportunity as well. So, but yeah, I would say uh, this film solidly achieved what it set out to do, even if it left a few members of its ensemble behind. Um, Nikki Amukabird, I think, was also kind of a shallow character. Uh, She's a psychologist who wants to, every once in a while, will tell everybody to talk about their feelings about what just happened. Yes. But then they don't, and then we move on. Like that's that's all there is. Yeah, but but she was the epileptic victim, so I, I think it, her character mattered because it mattered for the overall plot, but also like epilepsy sucks. I mean, but Ken Leung at least had some personality and contributed to the plot in some way. Dude's a nurse, you know. He's he's at least got all of his faculties intact as he's trying to help out. So that's something. Hey, he was on the college swim team. Didn't do him a lot of good, but he, he was, went the he wrong wanted, way. They had pool noodles and everything. Didn't work out for him. But as we'll eventually learn, pool noodles would not have helped them escape through the one route, through the fucking Einstein-Rosen coral bridge they used to escape. It didn't, yeah. didn't work out for them. All right. Well, if you have any feedback on our discussion of old, feel free to email us at filmwonknet at gmail.com. Thank you for tuning in at filmwonk.net. Thank you for joining me, Daniel. Yeah, thanks for having me. And have a good night. Somewhere beyond the sea Somewhere we Stands on golden sands and watches the ships that go sailing somewhere beyond the sea. She's there watching for me. If I could fly like birds on high, then straight to her arms.